0: Well, then, if you would take up your Bibles with me, and we're going to go to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to continue the studies that we started in early December. Now, that was over a month ago, and you had Christmas and New Year and about eight other sermons to forget about (laughs) it by now. So, we'll just very, very quickly, for 30 seconds, recap what we've already seen in verses 1 to 11. We've seen the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Philippian church, he's received encouragement. Uh, from uh, uh, a visitor called Epaphroditus, and and he sort of prompted Paul to write this letter. He writes this letter firstly to express thanks to them uh, for a gift that they have given, but also to express uh, to them uh, just how much he is thanking God for them. He's seeking to encourage them, as he does at the start of so many of the letters that he writes, and he does that encouraging in a number of ways. He first of all encourages them because of the partnership that they have together in the gospel. He encourages them that the good work, that great work of salvation that God has started in them and in us will be brought to completion. The great assurance of eternal security or or the perseverance of the saints that we looked at last time, that we have. And then he encourages them finally with his prayers for the church. He's a man of prayer. He embodies what it is to pray And then he he demonstrates how important that is. But he also prays that they would grow in discernment, that they would grow in knowledge of God. And now we come to verse 12, where the Apostle Paul, if you like, begins the main section of his letter. And as we do that, as we start looking from verse 12, I want you to think maybe, if you can, of the last kind of places that you might expect a celebration to be taking place. There's lots of places where you can probably think of where a celebration or general rejoicing might be taking place. Maybe it's at a wedding or an engagement, how much people love to go to a wedding and celebrate uh, two people committing their lives to one another. Or maybe it's in a workplace or in a business setting where they've received really good results and so they've been so successful that they get together to celebrate their achievements. Maybe it's on the sports field, uh, when, when a team wins uh, uh, some sort of tournament or some sort of competition, you'll see celebration. Or maybe it's when someone's been cured or, 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 or of an illness, you'll see celebration. Maybe it's more annual events, a birthday, we've recently just celebrated a new year coming in, perhaps people are glad to see the back of the old year and celebrating a new year coming in. Or it's maybe those annual events like Christmas or Easter, or maybe for us a baptism. But what about Those places where you wouldn't find rejoicing or celebration. Well, perhaps in the last year you might be tempted to say Stamford Bridge football stadium, apart from yesterday where they did get a result, but um, you might be tempted to say that Chelsea might not have that much to celebrate at the minute. Or perhaps it's a workplace that's struggling. You've probably seen it on the telly before, of a big company goes bankrupt and there's all the employees taking their stuff, looking very miserable uh, as they leave their office. For the last time, miserable sadness, not rejoicing at all. And one of the very last places that you might expect to find rejoicing is a prison, especially the kind of prison where there's no guarantee of release. You think about those inmates on death row who have absolutely no certainty that they'll get out ever, and actually, it's very likely that they are going to end their days there. It's a depressing place. It's a place where people are dejected. It's a place where people, frankly, would probably want to just give up. And here in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul again finds himself in prison. Again finds himself in chains. And yet the central theme of our text, and indeed the entirety of this letter, is one of rejoicing. We see him use this word rejoice for the first time in verse 18 you see it there what then that in every way whether in pretence or in truth Christ is preached and in this I rejoice I rejoice I am rejoicing and of course there's that famous part that we'll all know in chapter 4 where he says rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice so he begins here in our text to explain why In a pretty awful situation that he's experiencing, he is able to rejoice. And why is he rejoicing? Ultimately, because as he'll explain later on in chapter 4, he has been able to master the art of being content in all situations. Whether he's brought low or lifted up, whether he's happy, whether he's sad, whether everything's going well for him or whether it's, it's all going wrong for him. He is able to master what it means to be content and happy in the Lord. And therefore the Apostle Paul sets to us an example and to the Philippian church of how we... Ought to respond to trial and to difficulties and to setbacks and persecution and suffering. And that's what we're going to explore today. He gives us an example of how we are to rejoice and how we are to see God's hand in all situations and therefore remain confident of what he's already observed in verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is our confidence this morning. That is our rest. That is our hope that whatever happens, this God who has started a good work in you will finish it. And one of the biggest reasons why Paul has been able to continue rejoicing is because of things such as the advance of the gospel. Ultimately, that's why he's rejoicing because that wasn't actually something that was guaranteed at this time. You see, Paul was a very, very influential figure in the Christian world by this point. And it was certainly hoped uh, that, uh, not just on this occasion, but on every occasion that he was arrested, that his arrest would shut him up, first of all, but would also shut up and suffocate the Christian message to the point of extinction. That was their goal, really, by arresting and persecuting Paul. But did that ever succeed? No. As we will see, it actually had the total opposite effect, which is why Paul remains confident. He remains buoyant. He remains rejoicing in our text. And he surveys this peculiar advance of the gospel. He comments on this miraculous advance of the gospel and acknowledges a number of things. And this morning we'll focus on three things that Paul recognises and rejoices in. Firstly, he will recognise and rejoice in God's providence. We'll get into that in just a second. He will then recognise the boldness among the church. And finally, he will rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel. So last time we had PPP. This time it's PBP. Providence boldness proclamation. If you want to write that down. So let's notice firstly, providence, and you'll see this primarily in verses 12 to verse 13. Now providence is one of those big theological words that you might hear people say, or you may even say it quite a bit, but not necessarily know what it means. So what do we mean when we use this word providence? Simply put, when we talk about providence, we mean God's perfect provision and ordering for us. That's what providence means. It's God providing for his people. And as an extension, it is God providing for all of creation. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. More than that, though, it's not just God's provision. That's not sort of the first meaning of, of providence. But it also means God's holy and perfect ordering of all things. So God's providence is his provision for us and his perfect ordering of all things and every single action. From the biggest events in history to the tiniest and most microscopic events and details of your life, God is sovereignly, providentially controlling all of them. The, the, the great theologian R.C. Sproul used to say that there is no maverick molecule There's not a single molecule in all of creation that is not out of God's control and out of his providential care. Do you remember that text in in Genesis 22? You might want to turn there if you don't remember it. Where God tests Abraham. And God tells Abraham to go up to the mountain or the hill Moriah. That designated place where he says, you're going to put your only son, the son you love, to death. You're going to sacrifice Isaac. As they get near to the point uh, where, where they're going to do the sacrifice, Isaac questions Abraham, as you think he might, uh, might do. And he says, probably to him, Dad, where is our sacrifice going to come from? Where is the sacrificial lamb uh, that is going to come from us? And what does Abraham say? He doesn't turn to his son and say, well, I'm going to kill you. He, he replies and he says, the Lord will provide. And then just as Abraham is about to sacrifice his own, sod, uh, his, own his own son, God providentially provides a substitute, a ram in the thicket, verifying, making true what Abraham has said, that the Lord will provide. Jehovah-Jireh, you've probably heard that expression before, meaning that the Lord Yahweh will provide. And God's providence in our text is seen primarily in verses 12 to verse 14. Look at verse 12 with me. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The things that have happened to me. Well, what is he talking about there? What has happened to Paul? We know already he's been imprisoned. We know he's been thrown in jail, and probably not even for the first time. But Paul here is not just referring to his imprisonment. He's perhaps referring to his entire life Since becoming a Christian. An experience of suffering. Since becoming a Christian. And you see Paul now, this apostle, is a man who knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to go through pain and trial for Christ. He faced beatings and floggings because of Christ. He faced shipwrecks and starvations and thirst. And all other sorts of attacks and persecutions simply for proclaiming Christ. And here he is now again in prison, suffering, probably a little bit bored, probably a little bit, or at least a little bit tempted to, to just be fed up and just be sick of everything. Bored of everything that's going on, sick to death of it. Looking at how much hardship he's going through and thinking, why have I experienced all this? And it became clear to some people at least that the hardship and the pain that he was going through was because of his obedience to God. And you see, when people observe Paul's life, when they looked at how much hardship and pain he was going through because of his clear obedience to God, it's entirely possible that these sufferings would have served to put people off the gospel. Some would have no doubt believed the stories and lies being told about him, so hated him. Some will have no doubt seen the way lies were being told about him and the way he was suffering and the way he was having to go to prison and turned against him, not because they really disliked Paul, they might have actually had some sympathy with what he was saying, but purely for self-preservation. I don't want to be persecuted like that. Having seen his suffering, they attempted to disassociate themselves from Paul and from Christianity, fearing that the same things may come their way. And that's even true about some of us today. We know the truth. We know what the Bible says is true, but we're worried, we're scared, we're shy of what that might mean uh, for us. We know the truth of the Bible. Will we keep God's, uh, God at arm's distance from our life out of fear of the reality of what the cost might be. Maybe that's even some of us here today. Who are keeping God at arm's distance. Nothing wrong with him, but I, I don't want him too near me in case he changes my life. And while that might have happened to some people... We can actually see that Paul is celebrating here that the opposite is taking place. In most cases, he says there in verse 12 that his suffering and his pain and what's happened to him has served to advance the gospel. You notice that there at the end of verse 12, that things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Matthew Henry commenting on this verse puts it like this. He says... It is a strange chemistry of providence, that, that word again, it is a strange chemistry of providence to be able to see a good as great as the advancement of the gospel out of so great an evil as the confinement of the apostle. This is crazy. Out of one of the most hideous situations arrives the most glorious of outcomes. And in the worst situations, Paul is able to observe And acknowledge and remain content in God's providence and his perfect timing. He is able to acknowledge and remain content in God's perfect timing. Knowing with confidence, with increasing boldness, that the God who started this good work in him will bring it to completion, including his sufferings. You see, the pain and trial we go through, it's all part of God's good work. But it is important for us to realise, before we are tempted to glorify this too much, it's important to realise that Paul's imprisonments and his persecutions were not straightforward. And they were certainly not pleasant. How sometimes we like to romanticise persecution today. We like to sort of make it seem fashionable and attractive. And we know almost certainly that Paul was arrested several times throughout his ministry. But we read two particular cases in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul is arrested and thrown in jail. And the first one is in Acts 16. You might want to turn there again to Acts 16. Just just really a handful of pages uh, back in your Bible. To Acts 16. And it's primarily really seen in verses 16 uh, to 24. We won't read them all now. But here we see that Paul and a, a colleague, a fellow minister, Silas, are ministering the gospel. They're preaching the gospel in Philippi. And a slave girl is following them around. She's chasing them and going after them and hassling them. And this is not just any slave girl. She's actually possessed by an evil spirit. And that possession that this slave girl experiences means she's able to predict the future. She's able to tell people what's going to go on in their life. And her uh, her owners were charging people an awful lot of money to come and see her and to hear their future, to hear their destiny. But she was disturbing Paul and Silas so much as they preached that Paul gets fed up. And you see in verse 18 of Acts chapter 16 that he commands the evil spirit to depart from her and to leave her. And then in verse 20 to 22, you don't see people relieved about this, but people are actually very angry. And they accuse Paul and Silas of all sorts of things, perhaps what you might call today disturbing the peace. They're accused of ruining someone's source of income. They're accused of ruining the local economic stability of the day. They are wrongly accused of doing things that they haven't actually done. And then the second example of Paul's imprisonment uh, that we can see in the Bible is also in Acts. uh, And this time it is in Acts 21. Again, turn there, if you would, to Acts 21. 21 and verse 27 onwards we see again paul being arrested you see paul is called to jerusalem he feels a calling from god to go to jerusalem and some people actually begged him say paul don't go there And in verse 28, there he goes and he preaches the gospel. He's ministering to them there in verse 28. But everybody is turning against him. Uh, Look there at uh, chapter 21 and verse 28. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, we're not going to unwrap everything there today, but essentially, in summary, Paul is being accused of discrimination against certain people. He's accused of teaching people to break the law, and he's being accused of defiling a holy place. There's three things that he is accused of there. So we firstly see Paul arrested for disturbing the peace and damaging local economic stability, and then we see him arrested for discrimination Anarchy and defiling a holy place. And you see, in both cases, there in Acts 16 and Acts 21, he's being punished and attacked for things that he genuinely hasn't actually done. What's the point here? Well, the point here is that the true reason for your suffering, the true reason for your persecutions, will not always be visible to the outside world. The real reason why so often you will suffer at the hands of others is because the world Hates Christ, but no one's going to admit that. So they'll make up lies and stories about you. They'll say things about you that are simply not true. When Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Acts 16, the crowd were not rallying around them and defending them and saying, oh, come on, leave it out. Let them al- leave them alone. We don't agree with them, but just let them, no- uh, let them go. No, in Acts 16 and verse 22, we read that the crowd joined in the attack A crowd so big, most of them probably didn't know exactly what was going on. So big, most likely didn't really know the truth. Most of them just thought these people are ruining the economy, disturbing the peace. Let's beat them up and get them thrown in jail. And it's the same there in Acts 21. As Paul is in Jerusalem, the crowds were not saying, look at Paul being persecuted and picked on again. Why doesn't he just get given a break? They're not coming and saying, well, now, I really don't agree with this man, but fair play to him for coming all this way for te- to, to tell us what he believes. In Acts 21 and verse 30 and onwards, we read that the whole city turned against Paul, trying to kill him, trying to accuse him of all sorts of things. Later on in Acts chapter 22, they will cry, this man is not fit to live. The Apostle Paul, he was hated for all sorts of false allegations that they had pinned on him. And it'll be the same for you, Christian. You'll hear them cry, you bigot. Shame on you. You're so unloving. You're so unkind. You'll have professing Christians who say that they know the truth better than you telling you that you don't know the real way of Christ because the real way of Christ is just love and acceptance and tolerance and all uh, can come in. You'll be vilified as a fundamentalist, an extremist, a bully, and yet so many of us still have a gung-ho attitude toward persecution. Oh, when persecution comes my way, I'll, I'll take my stand, I'll show them, I'll give them what for, It's all very well saying that. And it's all very well saying that we admire those who are facing persecution and that we would happily face the same thing. But it's another thing to actually do it, especially when we're not capable of even making that stand right now when times are relatively easy. That's the challenge for us this morning. Times compared to the sufferings and trials that the early Christian church faced are pretty easy. We like to talk about how much decline there is in the world, but times are still pretty easy. And how can we say that we will happily face persecution if we can't even spend time in our Bibles now, when we're able to? How can we claim that we're ready to face death for the sake of Christ when we can't even be bothered to go to church every week? These are serious things. Persecution is not nice. It's not romantic. It's not pretty. And it's certainly not for the toxic, half-in, half-out kind of Christianity that is on display in a lot of places today. But even when we know our faith is weak, and we know that we are not what we ought to be, even when we know that our faith is dim and not what it should be, we rejoice in the comfort of saying that he holds me fast, as we just sung, when I fear my faith will fail christ will hold me fast and so god honors those who suffer for his name if you're suffering as a christian this morning god honors those who suffer for his name and in due time will vindicate us so often our prayer should be that of the psalmist in psalm 26 and psalm 43 vindicate me O lord for i have walked with integrity Psalm 43, vindicates me, O Lord, and plead my cause among the nations, among the wicked nations. But then back to our text in Philippians, and in verse 13, we begin to see that although he is still in prison, the Lord has actually opened many eyes to the reality of what Paul is going through. As the psalmist praised, the Lord has indeed vindicated Paul. Verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. People are beginning to realize that he is not in chains for these false allegations. He is in chains for Christ. And what a fantastic testimony. He's not been there moaning. He's not been there complaining. He's not been there moving his fist up at God and getting angry at him for getting him in prison again. He's been quietly getting on, remaining content in God's plan for him. And now we we see things slowly coming together. Don't you love it in certain situations where you just think, yes, things are slowly coming together. But they're coming together in perhaps not the way he'd like. Perhaps not the way he would want. He's still in prison. He doesn't want to be in prison. But he remains content with what God's will is for him. You see, that is how so often we are able to glorify God best. And we simply trust and remain content in his providence, recognizing that there is no such thing as wasted time if God has put you there. And there may be situations or things that you have poured your time or commitment into which now feel like a waste of time. Maybe it's an individual who you loved and cared for, who turned out to be very different to who or what you were expecting them to be. Maybe it's a project that you're working on at work or something like that, something along those lines. And just as you finish it, you're told this work is no longer needed anymore. And you feel like you've wasted your time. And maybe it's the case, maybe it's even a sermon that you, you work hard on or some sort of talk or evangelistic message and then only a handful of people turn up. There is no such thing as wasted time in God's economy. Any trial you go through, no matter how painful... No matter how confusing, no matter how many times you find yourself pleading with God to take it away, it's not wasted. Any suffering or difficulty or persecution in your life is not wasted when you allow God to work in your heart, to transform you, to change you, to consume your dross and refine your gold. This is the purpose of suffering, is to allow God to continue to glorify himself, and preach to the world how gloriously good he is. Now, it's important to recognize that there will also be times where we will suffer at the hands of ourselves, and we should make a distinction here. There are things that I have done and uh, things that we have done uh, that cause us to suffer. And I think Peter puts this perfectly in 1 Peter 4, 5. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters what Peter's essentially saying here is that you can't suffer because you've been an idiot and then complain about it. You can't do something stupid and then claim suffering or that you're being persecuted. You can't drive through red lights or get caught speeding and go, well, at least I'm suffering for Christ. You can't get drunk and then the next morning you have a hangover and go, well, at least I'm suffering for the name of Christ. No, <laughs> let's just remember what C.S. Lewis said for a second. Sin always makes everyone stupid. And sin always has consequences. So let's not confuse our suffering for the sake of Christ with suffering at the hands of ourselves. But the impact of someone's suffering genuinely and sincerely for the sake of Christ can have a profound impact. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you see the impact? You see, by simply standing at firm, you do not know how the Lord can use that for his purposes. He will use the stands that you make to challenge others. And often we don't know what that is. And isn't that one of the most glorious and most wonderful things about the sovereignty of our God? We never know what he's going to do next. Your unconverted friend or family member, you don't know what God has got in store for them. Your illness or that physical pain that you're going through, you do not know what the Lord has in store. Your loneliness, your frustration that you always seem to be on your own, your horrid difficulties in your mental struggles inside your own head, your financial situation, whatever it is, you simply do not know what God has next. And you truly never know how making a bold stand of faith for God can have an impact. You never know the impact that you, as insignificant as we may be, can have. And we see here the impact in verse 14 that Paul's chains have caused an increase in boldness. And that's why I want us to notice, secondly, an increase in boldness. And I promise this one will be quicker. Boldness, and we see this primarily there in verse 14. You see, many people would have been quite rebuked by Paul's stand. Many people would have uh, perhaps by Paul taking a stand of being imprisoned and in chains, be, uh, or start to realise their own need to be more bold and more faithful. You see, they see him getting arrested, they see him being beaten up for the sake of Christ and perhaps feel ashamed because they've not gone through similar trials. Paul's stand itself was a challenge to other Christians and we, therefore, also must be a living, walking breathing testimony to what god has done in our lives so that as we saw earlier we may shine as lights in the world not looking to ourselves but looking and pointing to christ but similarly we ought to be light, shining the light in our church and in our christian circles so that we may draw one another closer to him do we do that with our christian friends and those who uh, we love who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, sometimes we're so quick to just try and tick a box there. Yes, they're Christians, so they can be my Christian friend. Do we encourage? Do we exhort? Do we teach each other? Do we instruct each other? Do we have a life that just by its very nature and by the way we conduct ourselves, challenge and sharpen other people? And you see there in verse 14 that most of the brethren have become more confident and bold to speak the word, speak the word what? Without fear. Fear. One man's imprisonment emboldened many. Why were so many emboldened by one man's stand? Because they now know they did not stand alone. Because they now know that they did not stand on their own. Paul's firmness and unwillingness to depart or compromise on the truth made them realize that they must do the same thing too. But it also made them realize how clearly Paul was being led by God. They knew the real reason why he was in prison and they wanted to honour his suffering and show their love, verse 17, by all the more courageously defending the truth, defending the gospel and proclaiming Christ from the rooftops. Do we today honour the suffering of others with our walks with God? Do we take our Christianity seriously? Do we take our witness seriously? Do we take our boldness for the gospel seriously, not only to serve Christ, although that's the most important thing, but to also honour others who are going through so much worse? We need to see the importance of boldness and courage in our Christian lives. We need to see what it means to be courageous. So often we're so timid, so often we're afraid of the dark clouds of trials and have a very shy attitude towards any public expression of faith in Christ. I love how william cowper puts it he says ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head these things that we fear those dark clouds that we fear are not full of anger not full of pain but are full of mercy and they'll break with great blessings on your head what is it that paul says in romans 1 this is something for you if you are shy retiring what is it that he says in Romans 1 I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe that is what you are clothed with when you stand unashamed for the gospel the power of God when you preach the gospel and declare the gospel you're not clothed with your own power you're clothed with the power of God when you talk to your friends and unconverted family members about God you are clothed with strength and power from on high That spirit that brought Jesus from the dead is clothed upon you and the power of God goes with you. And when you look at trial and adversity in the face, whether it it be when evangelizing or when you're just going through awful, agonizing times, you can run through it anyway with Christ by your side and observe as we see in Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God." I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And you see here in verse 14 the people are now being encouraged. Christians are now being encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. And this is the purpose of our boldness. Not so that we can become more sure of ourselves. This is where some people get confused. We're not to be bold so that we can become more sure of ourselves and more confident and frankly arrogant The reason we have boldness boldness, is so that we become more confident in the one in whom we are proclaiming. And therefore our boldness will not have that thing where you have a horrible, stinking, ugly arrogance. But that confidence in the gospel will mean that you grow more confident in God and therefore become more humble in his presence. This is why Paul rejoices at the proclamation of the gospel, because there is something incredibly humbling about its privilege. something humbling about the privilege of standing in front of people proclaiming the gospel but it's also humbling just to have those quiet moments one-on-one with a friend sharing with them the truth of the gospel sharing with them the light that is found in christ and christ alone and that is what we have to remember here that is what we have to get into our, our hearts into our minds that we can never get to a point of spiritual independence we never get to a point where we're independent in our evangelism we never get to a point where we're so spiritual and so holy that we can just do things on our own the true key to holiness the true key key to true spirituality is becoming more and more aware of just how insufficient and how not enough you are so Paul rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel, and that's why I want us to notice lastly. So I said that one would really be quicker. The proclamation of the gospel. Let us notice lastly, proclamation, verse fifteen to verse eighteen in particular. Verse eighteen, we see this perhaps uh, most clearly. Uh, read with me, verse eighteen. What then? That only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. The important thing is that Christ is preached. That was Paul's main concern. He was not constantly worrying about every tiny detail. He was not constantly getting involved in almost sort of micromanagement of the church. He was simply content that knowing that while he was forced on the sidelines, forced on the sidelines, he didn't want to be there, Christ was still being preached. And what a comfort this is to us. Even when our own circumstances mean uh, that we cannot do what we want to do, Even when our own circumstances mean that uh, we are uh, struggling and going through pain. Even in those times of difficulty, we can truly say our king is still marching on. Even when it means that we can't do the things we would like to for the gospel, our king is still ruling and reigning over all creation. And perhaps this reminds you of how Paul encourages the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. He comments on the, uh, of the spread of the gospel and says all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing. No matter the circumstances, no matter the increase in secularism in society, no matter how it seems like the church is really up against it, no matter if it seems like all, is, all of hell is endeavouring to shake your soul, our God promises that I will never, no never, no never forsake you. So regardless of the, of, of the situations, regardless of the circumstances, the gospel is preached, the gospel is proclaimed, and that is our encouragement. That is the thing we rest in. And you see, Paul highlights here that not everyone who is proclaiming the gospel is actually doing it for honourable intentions. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from good will. If you like Paul unpacks two kinds of individuals that you might want to note down who are now preaching the gospel. The first are the people who preach the gospel out of love, verse seventeen. You might want to look at verse sixteen and vice versa, and that's for technical and boring reasons that we won't go into now. But let's look at verse seventeen. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defence of the gospel. Knowing that Paul is in chains here for the defense of the gospel, they preach the gospel out of love. Firstly, for the apostle Paul. He was seen as a spiritual father to them in many ways. They wanted to honor his suffering by proclaiming the gospel. His willingness to serve God inspires you to go and be more bold. That's what is happening here. So they continue to preach out of love for Paul, but not just for Paul. Not just for an individual, but for the sake and for the name of Christ. They preach the name of Christ because they love him. Remember what Eric Liddell cried out as he left Edinburgh Waverley Station. He was a very talented athlete and he went to be a missionary. And there at Edinburgh Waverley Station, everyone wanted to know, what are you doing? And he simply responded by saying, Christ for the world, for the world needs christ and then without a second's hesitation he leads the crowds in singing jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and weigh no more and that is our anthem that is our motto christ for the world for the world needs christ this world needs to know today that he reigns this world needs to know today that we love him and that we want him and a love for christ causes us to have a love for serving him and spreading his word a love for the gospel causes us not to hold it within us not to keep it to ourselves but to share it with other people knowing how we have been transformed would make us want to see other people transformed with it so if we truly love the lost, if you truly love people who are not a Christian, then you will share it with them and give them that message. Let's all admit, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're too timid, we're too shy. And I don't want you to think that this is easy. It's not supposed to be. Being the only Christian in your school or university, being the only one who has any interest in going to church, it's difficult. But you were made not to fit in. You are made to stand out being the only person in your office being the only person in your workplace who has any interest in the gospel who wants to talk about Jesus being the only one in your office who hates hearing his name used as a swear word you are there in his name so that's the people who preach Christ out of love but there's a second kind of people And these are the people who preach Christ for the wrong reasons. They are preaching the gospel, you might want to again note this down, for dishonourable reasons. Paul unpacks this in verse 16, or verse 17 if you're in another another Bible. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. There's really two different things here as to why people might have dishonourable intentions for preaching the gospel. The first group of people, right at the beginning of verse 16, are the ones who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. These are the people who are in it to themselves, in it for themselves. You hear people say that about politicians all the time, don't you? And I hate to remind you that we're going to have a general election at some point this year. And you'll probably hear this a lot. They're not in politics for the right reasons. They're in it for themselves. They're in it for what they can get out of it. They're in it for uh, some sort of status, some sort of fame. You see a lot of american politicians claiming to be christians when they're not because they know it will sit well with certain kinds of voters so they claim to be christians quite often embarrassingly so because they know they can get something out of it there are many people who try to get something out of a ministry trying to get something out of claiming to be a christian maybe it's money and that's entirely possible maybe it's fame maybe it's a sense of celebrity maybe it's an opportunity to stand in front of people and perform and just Get attention. You'll often be able to recognise these people because they won't let something silly like the Bible get in the way of preaching their own agendas and their own opinions. We see how Paul describes them here as preaching out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. These are not sincere people. These are people who don't really believe what they're saying. They don't have any real passion behind what they're saying. They're fakers, they're pretenders, they're hypocrites. And it's entirely possible that good-looking or good church-going people can fake and pretend to be Christians. Fake and pretend to be obedient servants of God when underneath they're rotting away. Thomas Watson puts it like this. He says, what use would it be if everyone thinks you're in heaven when you're really in hell? Jesus reminds us us of that in Matthew 7, doesn't he? Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. But Lord, I went to church every Sunday. But Lord, I, I preached a good sermon once. But Lord, I didn't do that specific sin that you told me not to do. But Lord, I was baptised. But Lord, all my family are Christians and I never had anything wrong with it. And he'll say, I'm sorry. I never knew you. I don't know you. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a thing we've got to remember. If you're pretending today, if you're faking today, build your life on the rock of Christ. That's what Jesus can. He doesn't just scare people uh, senseless and then leave them. He then goes on to say, build your life on the rock of Christ. Don't build your life on anyone else. Don't build your life on people. Don't build your life on your own strength or the things you've done. Build your life on Christ. (coughs) And there's a second reason why these people preach Christ falsely. They preach Christ for dishonourable intentions. Second part part of verse 17 Uh, Verse 16, sorry, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chain. So that's the second reason why someone might preach Christ for dishonourable intentions, to afflict Paul further. They're preaching Christ in part to be troublemakers. They're preaching Christ to try and get Paul into trouble. I guess the logic here is, well, if the gospel got him into trouble in the first place, if preaching this stuff has got him into trouble to begin with, then if we preach in the name of Paul, we might be able to get him into even more trouble. We might not just get him in jail, we might actually get him killed. And there are also people there who are trying to preach, trying to afflict Paul by rubbing it in. Trying to rub in the fact that they can do something that he can't, knowing that he would have desperately wanted to be out there preaching and declaring. And they would have known this. And they would have taken great joy and pleasure in thinking they were getting into his head You know, um, when I was younger, I'm sure it still happens now, there was something called indirecting where you'd put something on your social media which was subtly aimed at somebody else. And that's kind of the modern-day equivalent, I think, uh, of what's going on here. They're trying to get uh, into his head, trying to make him jealous. They're trying to, uh, to mess him around. And in verse 16, Paul is describing those people who would have been friends, people who would have been colleagues in the gospel, trying to add to his woes. People who are professing Christians trying to add to poor suffering. Or at least trying to. So don't be surprised when you suffer at the hands of other professing Christians. Don't be surprised if your hardship sometimes comes from other Christians. Perhaps this is the hardest thing to accept. You kind of expect it from the world. You kind of expect it from the world and non-Christians. But from Christians? It's bizarre. It's wrong. It cuts deep. When Christians lie, it hurts when Christians let you down and deceive you and mislead you or even work against you. And maybe it's the case this morning that you are a Christian who has been hurt very badly by other Christians. And it's really hard to forgive, but what feels even harder is the sense that they've got away with it. And it seems like God is using these individuals. Well, remember what Paul says that in this case, I rejoice because Christ is preached. If you're not a Christian, can I just say, please don't hold the actions of someone else against Christ. Please do not run away from his great salvation because of something uh, that somebody else did. When facing trials and when facing persecutions, and when even some Christians try to rub it in and make it worse, do we retaliate? Does Paul retaliate? Are we supposed to try and get our own back? No. Paul's example shows us that instead in every situation we are able and we are supposed to seek the opportunities presented to us and seek the blessings given to us. Remember how he puts it in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And even while in prison, Paul embodies this instruction. He would want to be out of jail. He would have wanted to be preaching Christ crucified once more, but he's rejoicing and recognizing the good in his situation. Never once has he been seen unnecessarily complaining. He's highlighted it, don't get me wrong, but he's never complained. Never once has he been seen worrying. Never once has he been seen uh, to try and drag the Philippian church or anyone else down with his problems. But instead he has a great concern for them. And a burden for them. And that's a sign to look out for, by the way, for a mature, godly, uh, disciplined and obedient person. Someone who even when they're going through and facing their own hardship. Someone who even when they're facing great trials themselves, still find it in themselves to rejoice. And to see the good that God is doing. And even when they're suffering and going through pain, they find it in themselves to care for others. I'll give you a personal personal example of this before we close. A little while ago, or quite a while ago now, I went through my own period of trial and difficulty. A very, very difficult situation. And while this was happening, I went away for a work and met up with a Christian friend that evening. And he spent all that time talking with me. And Letting me get things off my chest, praying with me, giving me advice. It wasn't until the end of the evening when we were about to part ways, where we were asking each other how we can pray for each other. And he revealed to me that that very week, his dad had been diagnosed with cancer. Not one mention of it the entire evening. Not moaning, not seeking to bring others down, not trying to feed a discouragement spiral, but getting on and seeking how you can encourage others. Can I ask you, how are you when you are going through difficulty? How are you when you're going through pain? Are you bitter? Are you moaning? Or are you ready to see the good in your situation? To see the opportunity in your situation to rejoice? You see, suffering does not come our our way so we can sit around miserably. It is to teach us how we can better minister to others and comfort others with the same comfort that we've been given. It is to further magnify Christ's presence in our lives, knowing confidently that he has walked where we walk, so that we can say, as Richard Baxter writes, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of grief shall not you overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress suffering enables us to see all the more the glories of proclaiming christ and the glories of christ himself and let me tell you that this christ you serve this morning if indeed you do serve him is glorious he's wonderful he's precious as peter says to those of you who believe he is precious this is a king worth serving This is a king worth following. This is a king worth suffering for. Because we know that when we are faced with trials on every side, in him the final outcome is always certain. And in him we are confident that he who began a good work in you, maybe even today, will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We come, Lord, and we recognize that we've looked at so much today and uh, not one of us in this room can say we have fulfilled everything perfectly. Uh, And yet we recognize that you are a gracious and kind God. Lord, we pray, first of all, as if we maybe had never known you before. Lord Jesus Christ, come into my heart, I pray. Dwell within me. Forgive me of how wrong I have been. Forgive me of where I have turned away from you. And Lord Jesus Christ, would you be with me forever? May I suffer for you. May I live for you. Lord, for those of us who believe and who are going through great trial and difficulty even now, Lord, be with us. Rest upon us. Sanctify these distresses and pains to us. And for those who as at this moment do not suffer, help us to encourage and uplift your peace.